Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. Back at you again this week. I hope you've enjoyed some of the episodes recently. Again, another solo episode here, no interview. But unlike last week, which I think was a good uh, podcast, in my humble opinion, uh, where we went over several topics, it was a bit scattershot, although I thought all of them were very relevant, including a segment I did on situational aggressiveness and how things have shifted in the NFL, which I wrote up this week on pff.com. Go check that out. Uh, So unlike last week, for this week, I'm going to have different segments. I'm going to have different topics to go over, uh, different concepts in particular to go go over, but there's going to be a unifying theme. And that unifying theme this week is everyone's favorite coach, Bill Belichick. The stats are for losers. Final scores for winners. So, uh, Bill, as you hear here, he's he's been trolling analytics uh, for a while now, and he had a statement that was reported on. I commented on it. Some other people commented on it where we don't have the actual video. I've tried to obtain it from some people I know in, in the league office, but it was during a the Aussie Newsom GM forum and which they also had a QB summit the, the next day. But this is from the, the GM forum that they had there. And for Bill, it was really what was written up in a in a tweet copy from a reporter, uh, D. Orlando Ledbetter. He writes for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So he had a screenshot of old Billy's face. And as part of this, he said, Patriots Bill Belichick and Chiefs Andy Reid, although I'm going to leave Andy Reid out of discussion here for, for a second, uh, are not fans of analytics. And then the quote from attributed to Bill here says, I prefer good players, good good fundamentals, and good execution. Now, like I said, there's an element of trolling here. I get it, Bill. I know what you're doing as far as that's concerned. I think it's hard to look back on what the Patriots have done and say they haven't been influenced by analytics or by thinking about the game in a forward-looking manner. But... There is the possibility, and it's something I thought about for a while, but I hadn't really researched into until the research I'm doing for this podcast, is whether or not there's been a shift, not necessarily in how the Patriots and Bill Belichick operates independent of the rest of the league, but the fact that the NFL as a whole, as we know, has moved further and further towards doing things like the big the big stuff that we're always arguing about for seems like forever uh, on social media about devaluing the running back, about going for more often on fourth down, about using different analytical concepts and having people on his staff like, you know, um, He's had people on his staff for a, for a long time here. I mean, the most famous guy that he's had on his staff uh, forever was the fact that he had Ernie Adams there working on those, those sorts of things, right? But has he not maintained with the league? When the league's been moving forward, has Bill regressed vis-a-vis the rest of the league? So I did quite a bit of analysis looking at that. I also want to uh, talk about another concept about positive feedback loops, how they work for team building, for coaching, 
differences between how they operate on the pre-NFL level, whether it's high school football or college football, how they work in the NFL, and how Belichick really was a master of exploiting the positive feedback loop. But things, again, there may have changed a bit. And then the last topic that I'm going to talk about is on luck. And I think Belichick's a great example when we want to talk about luck because there's always this pushback against ascribing almost anything to luck because of the fact that it detracts from the skill of the coach or the player, or in the case of business, we talk about how luck is influential and people being billionaires, you know, it's like we're taking away from their, their hard work, which of course isn't true. And I want to talk about in the context of, of, of Belichick, but then also look at it in a more universal way that we can think about how to assign luck to different, to different people and how it's really just part of everything that we do and we have to get comfortable with it. So those are, those are the things going to hit today. But the first thing we're going to go over again is to figure out what Belichick has been doing as far as any way that we can see if he's regressed on analytics. Now, this section in particular, although this almost is a universal thing for the podcast, is we're going to have to not be too overconfident in what we're talking about here because we're not inside of these buildings. You know, I, I try to do some poking around with people who I know were part of the Patriots organization, uh, tight-lipped, to say the least, for, for, what, for what's going on there. So we don't really know what's, go, what's going on behind the scenes, in particular when it comes to the influence of doing different analytical work, like I said, with Ernie Adams is, it was doing there for a very long time, where I know that they were out in front as far as tracking trends, as far as compiling numbers and doing things of that nature to use in the football analysis. So we really don't know how we're getting from point A to point Z, Z being the decision and where the analytical work falls into that. So the things that we can observe, and this is the problem. So we have all of this unobservable stuff, which influences us and our thinking on this, but we can't have any concrete thinking about that. And then we have the observable stuff, which is a much smaller portion of the pie, but we can be very concrete in our assessment of how the concrete stuff is and the observable stuff has been done. Um, but because we're missing all this stuff, we can't be overconfident. So the first thing I looked at and the most obvious thing, thing we hash out so much is fourth downs, right? Uh, how has Belichick been on fourth downs? So I looked at the Patriots and what I did was I looked at how often they were going for it. And then I, for every single time a team is going for it, I'm calculating an expected rate at which a team will go for it. And because there is a systematic bias towards conservatism all these years, I'm assuming that teams going for it at a higher rate is in and of itself better because it really was for the longest time. There's almost a uniform alignment between teams that go for it the most often over expectation and teams that were maximizing the most value from doing that. When you look at teams like the Ravens and what they've been doing recently. So for every single team, I'm figuring out based upon down distance field position, uh, score differential time that's left in the game, all those different things I'm figuring out what is the likelihood that you're going to go for fourth down and then 
whether or not a team went for it or not. So they get a positive of their the rate that they've gone for it over expectation if they did go for it, unless it's a 100% chance that a team was going to go for it on a particular down, which it never is. And that's going to vary depending upon how likely it is that the average team would have gone for it. And then you're going to lose credit for not going for it in different situations. So the Patriots, we have data going back to 2016. I'm using the PFF data on this. You can go back further, of course, if you wanted to calculate this out with NFL faster data or other data. And if you look at the Patriots, right, going back to 2006, it does seem like there has been a regression. Although, like I mentioned, a lot of this is the fact that the rest of the league is caught up. But Belichick was very far out in front. And I'm just going to say Belichick, meaning the Patriots, right? And he being the main decision maker, the decider uh, for the Patriots. So if you go back to, let's look at the first five years of this sample, right? And if I rank teams based upon the rate at which they went forward on fourth down, over expectation, the Patriots in 2006 were second, and then I'm just going to count out the, the next years here. Then they were third, then they were 11th, so a little bit higher, not quite as close, but then f- first in 2009 and fourth in 2010. So that's pretty strong. Now, in the subsequent years, 2015, they were pretty high. They got into the, the, the top five or six there, but then they kind of hung out in that 10 sort of range. And then if we look at the last five years we've had, the Patriots have been 16th, 20th, 25th, 15th, and 30th. Now, the big drop-off is in this last year where they dropped down to 30th. And when you put this out there, of course, the natural response from everyone is, well, this is the Cam Newton season. So Brady's no longer there. That's why there's a big decline. Uh, I agree with that. Although I do think Cam Newton for fourth or with, you know, four or fewer yards to go seems like a great option to go for it on fourth down. So I do think there was additional conservatism being at play here beyond a reasonable or rational shift based upon the change in quarterback. And also if you go, you know, 2017, they were 20th as far as over expectation, right? They were below expectation. And that is Brady's MV. That's Brady. Brady was MVP in 2017. He was pretty good in 2018 when they were 25th. So it's not like this, there was a one-to-one thing here with quality of quarterback play and whether or not you're going for it and fourth down. So I think for sure for the Patriots, there was a regression there. And a lot of people have pointed to, and I think one of the most famous events in the fourth down discussion was during the middle of the 2009 season. People may or may not remember the fact that the Patriots decided to go for it on fourth and two from their own 28 with a little bit over two minutes left to go against the Colts. So this is in Indianapolis, I believe, against Peyton Manning and the Colts. And they were up by six points here. So not only did the Colts, okay, so let's say they would have punted, right? So not only the Colts would have had to march down the field, a field goal would not have been enough. They would have needed to score a touchdown to win the game. But I think what Belichick knew here is that, you know, having a lead of four, five, or six points isn't necessarily better than even being up by three because the Colts are going to be a situation where they're going to be forced 
to go all the way for that touchdown. So they were going to go for it on fourth downs. They were going to be in a very much in a hurry up type of situation. Now what happened in this game is that the Colts took over because they did not convert that fourth down. They ended up scoring a touchdown with about 13 seconds left, which is not given enough time for the Patriots to get the ball back. And they won the game. And in a longer timeline for that season, the Patriots moved to six and three at that point, the Colts were nine and zero. Uh, the Colts went on to have the number one seed. The Patriots did not have a bye, which I think happened 10 straight years going into um, not this, not obviously not counting 2020 when they didn't make the playoffs, but before that. So this is one of the last times that they didn't have that happening. This was a time where, you know, they lost the Super Bowl in that fantastic year where they're probably one of the best teams ever. And that, and that, if not the best team ever in 2000, that 2007 season, they lost the Super Bowl to the Giants. Obviously there, you know, Tom Brady had the injury out for the year. And then this year they lost in the wild card game after having this game that they lost. Um, they lost the Ravens in the wild card game. So it's just a series of events where I could see some of this may have started to weigh on Belichick as far as pulling back the aggression on, on some of these things. I think there's, there's some evidence of that, but a lot of it is, especially in the last few seasons, the rest of the league really, really catching up. So that is, I think indisputably, you can point to that and say that Belichick is falling off in, in that regard. Now, when we want to think about some other things that they were doing, trading up or trading down in the draft, that's another thing that we can observe. We can quantify. We can put some numbers around to get an idea there. Now, I didn't want to go back and do every single year and what every single trade that they were making, but what the Patriots were doing quite a bit was they're drafting at the end of the first round. They would trade back a little bit for those teams who want to get into the first round to grab a player before a bunch of poor teams are drafting at the, at the top half of the round to have availability of the fifth-year option, all that sort of stuff. And the Patriots were trading out of that pick quite a bit and gaining – incremental value in, in doing so in the last few seasons i'm looking at, at what they had done here um i mean they traded up into the second round just this last draft uh they they gave up quite a bit for that that was quite a bit of a negative trade uh some other trades that they've made recently you know they traded away that second round pick for Mohamed sanu during the middle of the 2019 season um Actually, no, wait, I'm sorry. That was during the, uh, the 2018 season. Obviously, that did not work out well um, at all. The question was that Belichick, was it Brady really wanting that, that desperation to push forward? I'm not quite sure, but obviously did not, did not end up doing very well at all. Uh, that second round pick actually ended up in the hands of the, pay, of the Ravens, believe it or not. They took J.K. Dobbins with that after getting it from Atlanta for Hayden Hurst. Um, another thing that's happened recently just a lot of wasted draft picks. And I'm going to talk about luck later on. And I think they've gone, Belichick's gone over to the bad side of luck there. But in some cases, like doubling up on tight ends in the third round of the 2020 draft, and now going and spending a ton of money on Johnu Smith and Hunter Henry, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, especially for a position that takes a while to, to develop. Uh, they took a kicker in the fifth round on um, the 2020 draft, so not so great. But, okay, let's talk about some bigger things here. Um, but when, when we look at the trade up and trade downs over the last few seasons, which is really what I'm concentrating on here, they about equal out, which again, versus the rest of the league doesn't look so bad, but versus Belichick of old, it looks bad versus what, what he had done before to gain all those extra picks. 
Um, let's talk about the running back position. I think the Patriots are probably more influential than almost any team in the NFL changing the nature of the running back position because of the fact that they went for a committee backfield and a committee backfield, which was a specialized committee backfield. So we can think about a lot of these things. I mean, going all the way back to what they did in the draft, I mean, they probably overpaid a bit here, but this is quite, this is, you know, 10 years ago in 2011, they drafted Shane Vereen in the second round and then Ridley, Stephen Ridley in the third round really, you know, ended up being a little bit busty, but um, that's when they kind of really made that, that switch was, was, was right around that sort of range over the last 15 years or so to say, because they drafted Lawrence Maroney in the first round in 2006. But then after that, after he played out his usefulness, they realized that you could have this split backfield. You can pay less for each particular running back. And the information that you're giving away by having a particular running back there isn't as much as you might think because what teams are doing is dictated more than, than anything else based upon down and distance. Now, first down and 10 is a 50-50 split, but just because you have James White in there, just because you have Shane Vereen in there, just because you had Dion Lewis in there, it didn't mean that, or Rex Burkhead, any of these guys, it didn't mean that there was no threat of a run. Like those guys were effective, but not great runners. So you had that sort of thing in there. And just because you had Stephen Ridley or uh, LeGarrette Blunt or um, some of the big backs now, like Sony Michelle, who they're using in that, in that role, it doesn't mean that you couldn't pass the ball. Those guys can stay in the pass block. Those guys can have show some functionality catching the ball. So I think they're okay. So Bill was really instrumental in doing that in shifting there. And I think what it allowed them to do was really take a position where a lot of draft capital has been wasted and barely spend anything on it. So I mentioned how they drafted Maroney first overall in 2006. So qu quite, quite a ways down the road. Now, they drafted a running back in the sixth round of 2007. They didn't draft any running backs, 2008, 2009, 2010, three straight years, Zippo. 2011, they take Vereen in the second, Ridley in the third. So that, that's a heavy, hefty investment. But then again, 2012, zero running backs. 2013, zero running backs. 2014, they take James White, although that was in the fourth round. So fantastic investment for a player like White who can function and is undervalued by the rest of the league, right? And then before Michelle, that was the last time when they drafted uh, Sony Michelle, right? That was in the 2018 draft. So again, 17, 16, 15, no running back. So that's two different, few different time periods we're talking about here of multiple years of not drafting even a single running back and saving that draft capital. But what they've done recently, I think has been a bit of an issue. Uh, they drafted, you know, Michelle with the number one pick, which... I, mean, I don't want to get too much into the prospect side of things, but it's a little bit strange, right? So they have that there. Then in the 2019 draft, so the very next year after investing this first round pick, Damian Harris in the third round, right? And then 2020, no running backs. But then 2021, now they're drafting uh, Ramondre Stevenson in the fourth round. Now, fourth round is not a huge investment, but the interesting thing about Stevenson is like, he's not a back that you figured you'd get a discount on. He's a 230 pound dude. So really the rest of the league would have to just be off on their evaluation there. Same with Damian Harris. You're not getting one of these receiving backs cheap, like maybe a Michael Carter that you're seeing the, the Jets get in the fourth round. So I don't think you're really getting the same sort of value there that you, that you would have hoped for. So the fact that he's, he's turned a little bit on that, which is strange. 
And they also had this thing where I think it was good that they didn't want to lean on any one particular running back, but they also made a lot of investments in running backs during that time period. I mean, Rex Burkhead, they signed him to a deal where he made about, you know, over 3 million, 4 million a year for four years with the Patriots. And it didn't quite make sense. Uh, they let Deion Lewis go, which I think was obviously a, a good move. Um, they signed Mike Gillisley from the, from the Buffalo Bills, who was a, uh, I think he was on a restricted free agent tender. So they, they outbid for that. And they ended up paying him, I think, three and a half, oh, actually almost $4 million for just one season. And that, and that didn't work out. So at some point they were almost paying more than a lot of teams were at running back because it was accumulation of these veterans that they were paying while they, while they weren't taking some in the draft, which I think is good, you know, maybe sprinkle in some of those later round picks, which are unlikely to hit and having some running back talent would have been better than, than paying for it there. Um, so I think all those things we could say regress somewhat. Now, one other thing that we can look at again, this is not, the most precise way of doing things. But when we can't see into what teams are doing, we can at least get an idea of who they have on their staff, right? Now I mentioned um, Ernie Adams, and I think he's a, he's an interesting character. I mean, the, the story with him, according to an old Wright Thompson article with ESPN, we don't know a lot about him because there's just not a lot of information out there. I don't think he's ever doing interviews. Um, was that he left a job as an analyst and a trader on Wall Street back in the early 90s to join Belichick's Cleveland Browns. So he's been around a long time. He's retiring. He was someone where all you really know what they said, they looked at the tendencies of referees, among other responsibilities. And, you know, everyone kind of accepts that he's like this, this genius and more analytical thinker type. But again, he's been around for a very, very long time. He's an old school guy. Uh, and if you look at the list that's collected, Seth Walder works for ESPN and he's an analytics writer there. He's been collecting staffers, his best guesses for, for everyone that he knows of, which is pretty comprehensive for staffers for all these different teams. The only name for an analytics staffer that we have for the Patriots is Richard Miller, director of research. And if you look at Miller, he's been, he's been around for Patriots for 25 years, I believe. So again, old school guy probably handling a lot of these functions that Adams was functioning that was handling in the past. And in particular, I thought there was an interesting name out. There's a guy, Sean Harrington, who used to work for the, the Patriots. There were articles written about him in the past, a few years ago about how he was, I think he went to Tufts university. He had written some proprietary programs about, football analysis. He made his way into the Patriots staff. He gave up a job that would have been at Google to instead go and work for the Patriots. So, you know, he's no longer there. He hasn't been there for a couple of years now. So he's gone. The only person we know about is a uh, kind of a Patriots lifer who is, who's on the staff there. And when you look at other teams, like the Jaguars have five, six names here, uh, most teams at least have a couple of names. The Bills have four names. The Ravens have six different names. The Browns have seven or eight names and they continue to hire even more names. And what they're doing in particular is they're hiring people from the Big Data Bowl, which I talked about with uh, Dave Giuliani, who's the director of research and strategy for the Browns. I talked to him about this. They're hiring those people because they know how to work with this tracking data. So you just need some young 
computer savvy people in the building to help you digest this sort of stuff and to move forward and to stay on the cutting edge, even if the takeaways and the insights aren't going to be instrumental on day one. But it's about where you are versus the rest of the league. And I think in this regard also, unless there's a lot of stuff going on, which I don't know about, and that's entirely possible, there is the Kraft analytics group that the owner, uh, Robert Kraft, has that works with the Patriots. They may be doing a ton of, of work there, although I looked at some job listings there and it looked like they were doing more of the data collection and putting it into applications in a way that coaches could access it as opposed to really using machine learning and other things to get insights from the data. So unless I don't know about that, which is, like I said, very possible, they seem to be falling behind. So it's just one of an area of another area of another area where you can look at the Patriots and Bill Belichick and say, once someone was out in front and now has maybe fall, fallen back a bit. And I think the an explanation by uh, Mike Sando of that Belichick quote during the GM forum, when he said, he said the Belichick, he was giving more color to what he was saying about not being a fan of analytics. Uh, he's just saying the, mar- the margins are frequently so small that analytics are not going to override other factors out of hand. And the dismissive tone that Belichick has is maybe a weariness with the media fascination over something that he does not, you know, he doesn't see as disproportionate. He doesn't see a disproportionate impact from, from analytics. So again, it's not that he hates it. It's not that he's against it, but clearly it's not front of the mind. And I think, I don't know if something that you never know, like there's always the, maybe a bias against people as they get older, not wanting to buy into it as much, but they does seem to be going in, in that sort of direction. Uh, so I think on that regard, once a leader of the pack in implementing all of these various things, Belichick and the Patriots are now falling behind. The really stats are for losers, final scores for winners. Okay, so let's, before we get to the next topic here, I want to talk to you about some way that you can be doing some research. You can be in some analytics. You can be getting some high-level stuff when it comes to college football, and that is the PFF College Football Preview Magazine is out. Came out just this week. Uh, if you have a PFF College Grades subscription, you can get this for just $7.99. This is intense. Okay, the amount of work that Seth Galina, Anthony Tresh, and some other guys have put into this is just incredible. Uh, 600 plus pages of analysis, best returning players for all 130 teams, advanced scheme breakdowns and all the data that we've been collecting now from college football for a number of years, schedule of strength, win projections, everything more in that. So for less than $8 with a PFF College or PFF Edge subscription. So if you have either one of those, you can get this, this labor of love, this intense analysis on college football for just $7.99. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about when it comes to Belichick, and this is, initially I was just going to do something on whether or not he was falling behind, but then something came to me about the difficulties and the headwinds that he's going to be facing going forward. And one of those things, a conceptual thing that I want to talk about is um, the concept of a positive feedback loop. Now, let me give you a definition really quickly for those who don't know. You can say a positive feedback loop is a change in direction that causes an additional change in the same direction. So for for an example, 
if let's say I'm gonna think of something very obscure just because I had I should have prepared something in advance. But let's say you are a sprinter and you win races, right? And when you win a race, you win a prize money, which allows you to get better training, which then allows you to win more races, which then allows you to win, you get more prize money, which then allows you more training, which then more races and so on and so forth. So, so every single time we're going around the cycle, it's feeding into it and it's actually accelerating the cycle of what you're, of what you're doing, right? Uh, often people talk about negative feedback loops as being the opposite, like the opposite of a positive feedback loop, but I think they're thinking about it incorrectly. I mean, any, it, no matter which direction it's going, it's still a positive feedback loop because the positivity just means that it's increasing the, the rate here. Uh, no, it's not a directional sort of thing. But anyway, I, not going to get too confusing here. But when it comes to winning at all levels, although less so in the NFL, but I'll get to the NFL stuff in Belichick in a, in a minute. But winning on all levels when it comes to coaching can serve as a positive feedback loop. Okay. Uh, and what I mean is let's think about a great coach rebuilding a program. Okay. Or a great coach taking over a story program like Alabama when Nick Saban came in and then getting them back up to the, the promised land. So what happens is the coaching skill can have this outsized impact because coach comes in, coach changes, you know, technique or scheme or can recruit a little bit better and can coach better than the team wins more games, gets more press, gets more of a positive standing, uh, maybe goes to a bowl game. Recruits become more interested because of that winning, right? So now you're, it's easier to recruit. You can up your talent level, which allows you to win more games, which allows you to get more press and adulation and interest from recruits, which allows you to recruit more players and so on and so forth. So that's really a way you can have that positive feedback loop on the college level. Works also in the high school level to a degree, right? Uh, I'm not as familiar with high school football, but presumably it can be done there too. So in the NFL, it's a little bit more difficult to do because there's not the recruiting angle. It is a fixed salary cap league. I know people want to tell you the cap is fake, um, whatever. Uh, every team is given what's supposed to be fair number of draft picks. Uh, the picks at the end of the round are more valuable than some people think vis-a-vis -vis the, fr the front of the round. So I know you're trying to get parity, right? So all these things are set up to have parity on the professional level, which makes it more difficult or makes it less positivity, less momentum in these, in these feedback loops, but it still exists. And I think Belichick better than almost anyone. And I say almost because I think the Ravens were extremely good at this too, but better than almost anyone Belichick has been able to exploit the feedback loop and use that feedback loop to, to his advantage to maintain the level of play for such a long period of time. So if you think about the NFL level, the reason he's one of the few coaches who was able to really, really exploit this is because typically these feedback loops are used in a, in a different manner, which has less risk associated with it. So I'm going to contrast what 
the Patriots and the Ravens do had done more versus what, let's say, I don't know, the Kansas City Chiefs are doing right now. Okay. So the Chiefs are also using the feedback loop, right? They're a team that's been to the Super Bowl two years in a row. They won one of them. They really should have gone to the Super Bowl the year before that. They have Patrick Mahomes. They are the favorite going into the season. So because of that, they've been able to use that to re-sign their own players at contracts that I believe are discounted somewhat. Um, If you look at the contracts for Kelsey, for uh, Patrick Mahomes in particular, right? Uh, For Chris Jones, for a lot of these guys, these are good deals. These are discounted deals. Now, they're not using it as much as the Patriots and the Ravens did, where the Patriots and the Ravens were more willing to let players walk. So there is the option to do what the Chiefs have done, which is you pay near elite prices for elite talent. That's what they're doing. But the Patriots looked at it another way, and they said, rather than re-sign Chandler Jones when they had the chance, rather than, uh, I don't know, they eventually let, let Revis walk. They let a lot of these guys walk. They let uh, Richard uh, Seymour walk way back in the day, right? So rather than do that, sign elite players at near elite prices, what we're going to do is we're going to let those guys walk, We're going to get a benefit from collecting our compensatory picks for that. I'll talk about that in a second, how they've been able to to use that as part of the feedback loop. And they also were able to bring in players who weren't elite players, right? Or didn't play like elite players before they brought them in. Uh, Often they're looking for players who are coming off of disappointing years who are acquired via cheap trade like like how Randy Moss was was acquired or are acquired after being cut and when they're when they've been cut right you can acquire them and not affect the, co- the co- compensatory pick formula so you're not you're not ruining that 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 pick that you're getting for letting the player go um so they're bringing these players in and what they're getting is they're able to bring in more of them because it's at a smaller price, right? Than it is when you're re-signing the the players coming off of the Super Bowl, right? Who played well, don't get me wrong, but you're you're, you're buying more at the at the t- at the top of the cycle, like the Chiefs are doing. Whereas here, you're trying to buy lower in the cycle, and you're paying prices which are very often like an average for the position for a player who has the potential to be great or even elite. And by doing that, you're giving yourself, number one, you're spreading out the risk amongst these players. Number two, you're giving yourself more upside when it comes to a player like that. And that is another way that the Patriots were able to exploit these these feedback loops, right? Is by getting the cheaper players, but you have to be willing to let go of your 
more expensive talent. Like I said, guys that they've let go in the past. Vin, uh, uh, Vince Wilfork, they let go. They let go Darrell Rivas when he'd been playing there. Brandon Browner when he was there. They let go of uh, uh, Akib Talib when he was there. Brandon Spikes, the other guys that I had mentioned before. Denny Amendola has come and gone. They seem like they, they, they let him go whenever he gets too expensive, and then they brought him back whenever he was cheap. Wes Welker, they let Wes Welker leave, who still ended up playing obviously extremely well for the Broncos and Peyton Manning, but he was another guy they let go. So over and over and over again, they're letting these players go, and then they're sometimes bringing back when it comes to guys like like Danny Amendola, uh, sometimes – they're bringing back the same exact players uh, like Trent Brown, right? They, they let Trent Brown go. He signs this monster contract with um, the Raiders. And now they bring him back via trade for a much, a much lower price. Uh, a lot of these different times that they've, they've done something, something similar to that. And I think that is kind of the unappreciated benefit that Belichick has been able to do. Now, when we talk about the compensatory picks, again, this is a big part of this positive feedback loop. So I looked at all compensatory picks over the last 15 years. Unfortunately, the data I had only goes through 2019, but I'll talk about 2020 and 2021. So this is from, well, it's not 15 years, because it's 2006 to 2019. So we're losing a couple of years there. So I guess it's the, I'm losing a year there. So it's the last 14 years. And the Patriots were third in the number of compensatory picks. They had 27 picks over that 14 year time span. So almost an additional two picks per year. Think about that. There are lots of teams on here who had, there's some teams that had zero. There's some that have one, three, five. Lots of them have have fewer than 10, right? They had 27. The Ravens were number one with 37. So again, stretching that even further. And believe it or not, the Bengals were number two with 31 because they just don't sign anyone in free agency. So whereas the Patriots have done some big signings, right? Like they brought in Revis, they brought in, uh, they brought in Gilmore, they brought in some other guys. So they have done spot spending in those regards. And in 2020 and 2021, the Patriots were also exploiting that. Okay, they got a third round pick, a fourth round pick, and a fifth round pick in 2021. They got two third round compensatory picks and a sixth round pick in 2020. Uh, one of them was for Trent Brown, who I discussed. Another one was for Trey Flowers. So, and the third round pick that they got was for Tom Brady uh, leaving. And... The problem is, though, that if you look at the offseason and what the Patriots done, this whole thing of having great talent, drafting pretty well, bringing in guys on the cheap, then letting them go when they're more expensive, accumulating comp picks to find more talent, and so on and so forth, the cycle is looking like it's broken, at least temporarily, because this last offseason – they don't have the guys to re-sign on big contracts. I mean, you have uh, Dante Hightower, who's going to come up in a bit. So if they decide, they might decide to re-sign him because they just don't have a lot of other people to give money to, quite honestly. Uh, the pipeline is fairly barren going forward. So they're not going to have any comp picks next year because they brought in 
so many expensive players. They brought in John Smith. They brought in Hunter Henry. They brought in Kendrick Bourne. They brought in uh, Nelson Aguilar. They brought in, um, let, let me get who else they had on here. But the big, the big point is that they're bringing in all these players. And these are not players. These are not the traditional players for the Patriots who were the cut players, who were elite players, who they're getting at a discount. They're paying for these guys. Okay. Uh, let's bring it up here. So they signed, oh, Matt Judon, right? So, so they signed him for pretty big money, a little more than 13 million a year. They trade for Trent Brown for 9 million a year. So again, it's a trade. It's not quite the same thing, but not cheap, right? Kyle Van Oy, that, that that's one that kind of fits into there. We're going to bring the guy back. So they're getting a little bit of the, the benefit there. Uh, Hunter Henry, 12 and a half million a year. That is not cheap. That is expensive. And I know Hunter Henry is a good player, but that's like getting close to Travis Kelsey type of money, right? Um, who else do they have here? They have Nelson Aguilar, 11 million a season. They have John Smith, again, 12 and a half million. That's a lot of money. I'm just not quite sure about, about these deals that they have here. Jalen Mills, 6 million a season. Maybe you have some upside there, but it's just not going to be a ton, right? They're not, they're not doing the same thing that they were doing before. And that cycle is broken. And because of that, because they're bringing in so many players here in this 2021 offseason, including drafting a quarterback at 15, this feedback loop cycle is broken. And in order to get that going again, this is almost make or break. These players have to pay off. These players have to be players who are going to be better values than their contracts that are eventually going to leave and get re-signed somewhere else to get some compensatory picks from because they don't have the draft history recently to provide those players. And Mac Jones needs to hit or they're going to have some problems. Or we could be talking about potential last hurrah for Bill Belichick here, um, I mean, Belichick is, I don't want to misquote his age here, but I believe he's 69 years old. Yes, 69 years old. He turned 69, very nice, in April. So we could be talking about coming to the end here. And it's not that Belichick, again, it's not that he was, this just fell into his lap exploiting the, those feedback loops. That was something that he did a great job doing and maximizing versus what, other, what I see some other teams doing, right? At the same time, we cannot discount the Brady factor. And that's what we have to talk about here. Um, I mean, it goes into somewhat of the luck factor that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But, you know, getting a six-round pick, getting an offense that had that sort of stability – can't really be understated, right? If you look, and I'll just read out to you the rankings by season for EPA per play for offense and for defense for the Patriots. So, okay, last year is 23rd with Cam Newton, 21st the year before that where they really fell off a cliff with Brady. But if you look at before that, okay, 7th, 2nd, 6th, 5th, 5th, 6th, First, third, first, seventh, fifth, first, sixth. <laughs> okay. So even if we include that, that down year, that 21st year, that were the ranking was 21st with Brady in 2019. Even if we include that, the average we're talking about over 2006 to 2019, 
is right around fifth. So, you know, ignoring that other one, we're talking about pretty consistent top five offense that you had there. That's nice to have for a very, very long period of time. And again, it helps with this other feedback loop of players wanting to play there because you're winning, right? Uh, defense, on the other hand, and remember, Belichick is the defensive guy. If you look at their rankings, I'm going to count this year, uh, this last season, 2020, as I'm going backwards in time here. It goes 24th. Now, first the year before that. So props to that. Huge turnover season, though. Seventh, uh, 30th, 7th. 13th, 11th, 20th, 13th, 27th, 17th, 14th, 18th, 9th, and 5th. And again, when we, when we look at those and we say, well, what's the average that the Patriots had for their defensive ranking is about 14th, 13th, 14th. So better than league average, maybe about as good as you can hope for, for something like we've always said, how defense is pretty random, but still nowhere near the concrete performance that you're getting from the offensive side of the ball when you had Tom Brady there who is also now gone and Belichick is losing him all right so we're gonna hit uh, another sponsor here and this time we're gonna talk about life insurance life insurance do you need it I think so especially if you have loved ones or you have a big purchase like a home that you want to make sure is going to be taken care of if, God forbid, you're gone. And when should I start thinking about life insurance is one of the big questions in life. But however difficult that question may be, Western and Southern can help you answer it. Backed by over 130 years of experience, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. This is a compensated endorser products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. All right. So for this next segment, when I'm going to talk about luck, what I'm actually going to do is we're going to put this as taking you back to school. Back to school. Hey, boys, here's a couple of pens in case you learn how to write. Okay. All right. So for this back to school segment, talking about luck, the reason I'm going to say back to school, and I'm stretching a little bit here, is that I'm going to relate luck and a way to think about it as if we're doing a formulaic sort of way, as if we're doing a linear regression. Now, hopefully that didn't scare too many people off here because I'm not going to get into details of it. But the key, okay, the overarching key is that I think everyone admits that luck is part of life, right? And a pretty easy formula, a way to think about it, a lot of people think about it is to say, you know, skill, whatever you want to throw into skill, whether it's the circumstances, how you were born, where it comes to how smart you are, when it comes down to how good of a of a coach you are, let's say in the in the in the case of Belichick. So you have a skill plus luck equals your success or lack thereof, okay? I think we can agree that that's part of it, right? So if success is a big part of your story, if you've had tons and tons of success outside success, 
it's only fair to say on average, it's likely that you had more luck than other people, right? I mean, yeah, saying you had more luck than other people is not discounting the fact that you may have also had more skill than other people. It's not saying that your luck was disproportionate to other people who are also lucky because you're going to have a lot of skill too. But on an absolute basis, the luckier, the, the more successful you are, probably the more luck you had on an absolute basis too, which is also combined with definitely having more skill, right? So the way that I wanted to put this together is to say for a linear regression, for the, the formula for that, okay, you have a bunch of different, you know, let's say uh, observations. So in this case, let's say you have a bunch of different coaches you're throwing on there and you're measuring them by Super Bowls. And let's say you had some measure of skill. I don't know how you, how you would figure it out. It'd probably be a combination. This is probably like a multivariate analysis, but let's just say there's one thing you can put in there for skill. So for each coach, you would give them a different amount of skill, right? And then with that, you would have a, you know, a straight line where you'd have your estimate for how much success they would have in terms of Super Bowl based upon the estimate that you have for their skill. But all the numbers are not going to align perfectly, right? Some are going to be higher than the line. Some are going to be lower than that line. You see that all the time when you look at different regressions. Now, the differences between where those observations are and where the line is when it comes to success, so let's say in this case, Super Bowls, the difference is there, depending upon whether we're talking about this as an entire population or in a sample, we could say that's the air or that's the residual, right? So that's, I think when we're thinking about that, that air, that residual, that difference, if we could capture everything that went into skill in this skill formula, that's not going to tell us 100% of the success someone has because there is luck also. And those residuals, those differences is a great way of thinking about luck. They are random. They are normally, uh, they, 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 they have a normal distribution, meaning most of them are small differences from that line because luck is normally an, a small bit here and there. But then you have outliers who either have very, very good luck or very, very bad luck. And it's, it's net zero sum. So every piece of good luck is offset by a piece of bad luck. And I think that's also a appropriate analogy using these residuals with have a net zero sum. I think it's an appropriate analogy for the NFL where it's a net zero game, right? Every bit of luck for one coach is going to translate to success, but only at the expense of others, right? There's no like rising tide lifting all boats here. It's a net zero sum game. So when we start to think about it like that, like what is the likelihood that someone like Belichick who's had more success on a win percentage basis than anyone else is going to be below that line, right? But yet still have more success. What's the, what's the chance they're going to have negative residual and negative luck, but still be so far above everyone else? Pretty low, right? It's more likely than not they're going to have good fortune, good luck, and they're going to have pretty substantial good luck. If you think about it, like luck doesn't have to mean that you made a bunch of bad decisions that turned out well. 
luck doesn't have to be, you know, you drafted Brady in the sixth round and you became the greatest quarterback of all time. I mean, it can be that. That's definitely part of it, but it doesn't have to be that. What it can be is simply making a lot of really, really good decisions. That's when the skill comes into play, making a lot of really, really great decisions, but even the best decisions, the edge that you're getting on those decisions versus other decision makers. Cause again, that's who you're competing against. That's why the draft is so difficult. That's why coaching is so difficult is not because you're not smart. It's because you're competing against someone else. Who's also one of the elite top, top people in the profession in the entire world. So it can, it can mean using skill to get yourself a 55-45 edge or a 60-40 edge. But then hitting on those 70% of the time, 75% of the time, 65% of the time, whatever it is, at, at a higher clip, right? And typically that's what has to happen for people to be highly, highly successful if they're head and shoulders above everyone else. And I think a lot of the skill that we saw from Belichick were in these edges that he was employing, how he employed the positive feedback loop we talked about, how he employed the analytical edges that we talked about in the past. Those have been whittled away. So the skill component is just naturally going to be lower. And Belichick is going to need more of that luck component. He's going to need these draft picks to hit. He's going to need free, big-time money free agents that he, that he paid for paying up for Kendrick Bourne, paying up for Aguilar, paying up for John U. Smith, paying up for Hunter Henry, he's going to need those to hit, which typically they are bad investments. So in a lot of ways, what he's doing now is he's much closer to making 50-50 bets. In some cases with these free agents, he may be making 45-55 bets. He's making 50-50 bets with drafting guys like Mac Jones, I think, in the middle of the first round. And he's going to need those to hit at an even higher rate. He's going to need even more luck now than in the past to come close to matching the prior performance. And when you think about it that way, when you think about what he's going to need in that context, that's another area where he has some headwinds here in dealing with that. So to, to say that Belichick has been lucky is not to discount what he's done. It's not to be disrespectful. It's to acknowledge a reality. And it's also to acknowledge reality, the difficulties that he's going to have in the coming seasons, turning this around and getting things back on track. Okay, everybody, that's everything for me today. I appreciate everyone tuning in. Uh, you know what you guys can also do if you want to get any feedback to me on the pod? I appreciate YouTube comments and other things that I've seen and tweets and whatnot on it. You can go ahead and send me an email at kevin.cole at pff.com. And I will look at those and just title unexpected points in the email. And I will, you know, feel free to, to shoot you back some ideas or some explanations on, uh, things you may have. Otherwise, uh, thanks for tuning in and I'll talk at you again next week. Thanks. Thanks.